There's a lot of things that our culture is uh, fast at work in, in trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the church with. But one of the areas that is increasing in this is the area of self-love. This is a, an arena that is growing in popularity, not just in cultural circles, but within the walls of the church as the church is trying to take something that the world supports and the world applauds and shoehorn it into a biblical Christianity. And it's, it's painful to watch it unfold because here's just a, a sampling of quotes from the self-love movement. This one, love yourself so much that when somebody treats you wrong, you recognize it. Okay, I, I feel like the bar is pretty low on that one. My four-year-olds know when their brother picks on them, and they're not uh, practitioners of the self-love movement. Here's another one. It's not your job to like me, it's mine. You guys have all read that Bible verse, I'm sure, uh, that it's our job to like ourselves, and who cares what anyone else really thinks. Uh, this one, loving myself will work miracles in my life. Somebody just told Job that, right? Job, look, I know that you're down, your family died, you lost all your possessions. You've got these boils breaking out all your back. Just love yourself more, and miracles will come out of that. Or here's some that are a little bit more developed. Love yourself enough to set boundaries. Your time and energy are precious. You get to choose how you use it. You teach people how to treat you by deciding what you will and won't accept. By the way, these quotes were all taken off of a Christian counseling website that's trying to take this concept of self-love and make it something that Christians should be practicing. Or then there's this one. I have decided to stop saying yes to people in situations that don't support my well-being. Instead, I will say yes to my happiness and yes to my growth and yes to all the people and things that inspire me to be authentic and whole, while at the same time accepting me just the way I am. My yes from her here on out is my pledge to live honestly, my commitment to love myself fiercely, and my cry to create my best life possible. Yes. Okay. Meanwhile, in the Bible, you've got the Apostle Paul writing this in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. In other translations, it says, I make my body my slave. I am not a slave to the passions of my flesh. It's not about me living for what I want, what makes me feel good. No, in fact, I'm going to suppress those things intentionally because you know what those things are? They're fleshly. They're sinful things. And so I'm going to discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching Christ to others, I will be found to be disqualified. Or you've got our passage from this morning in church, Acts 14, 19 through 23. How about the self-love that Paul practiced there? When he is preaching Christ and the Jewish people don't like it, and so they pick up stones and they stone him and they leave him for dead, and, and he gets up from being stoned and left for dead and, and doesn't say, you know what, I need to set some boundaries because I'm clearly not setting enough boundaries. I need to say yes to people that aren't going to throw rocks at me. Is that what he did? No, he got up and went about continuing to obey the Lord, to preach the gospel in other places, to go right back to Antioch and Iconium later on, to bring the gospel back to the very cities where the people that stoned him were residing. There's 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 7, where the apostle Paul towards the end of his life says, I'm being poured out 
as a drink offering. I fought the fight. I finished the race. He's picturing being exhausted, being emptied of himself. And then his description here in 2 Timothy 3. Now notice the language here. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this, but understand this, that in the last days, so these are signs that we are approaching the last days where godlessness is running rampant on the earth. And notice the description. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Did you catch that? It's hard to miss. I know it's in pinkish red on the screen behind me. But I just want you to pay attention to that and notice that our world is not even trying to hide what they're saying. This is exactly what's being promoted. Exactly what's being promoted. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Notice, lovers of self is roped in and, and included with all of the rest of those descriptors there. No, but we need to be practicing self-love, self-love. Maybe you would say, okay, well, that, that's Paul. I follow Jesus, not Paul. Okay, well, here's Jesus for you. And he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him love himself a little bit more. Let him practice self-love. Is that what Jesus says? No, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross, an, an instrument of execution daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In other words, Jesus is saying to us today, you want to pander to the culture and practice all this self-love nonsense? You're on the fast track to hell, is what he's saying. You want to save your life here on this side of eternity? You're going to forfeit it when it matters. See, our passage tonight in Hebrews is not a call to the love of self, but a call to the love of others. The writer is beginning to, to conclude the letter that he's been writing. And in a lot of ways, Hebrews is a, a sermon that the author has been preaching. And as he's coming to the conclusion, he's talking now to the people and he's saying, here's some of the takeaways that I want you to bring away from this. If Jesus truly is better, which he is, and he's been showing that time and time and time again, well then, y'all, we need to live not for ourselves, but for Christ. And here's how Christ wants us to live in community with one another. And that's what our passage unpacks for us tonight. So take your Bibles and pick up in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. The opening command, the opening line sets the tone for the rest of our, our passage. Let brotherly love continue. It's a command. It's an imperative in force there. Let brotherly love abide or remain or keep going. Treat one another as family, in other words, is what he's saying. Paul so often uses the analogy of the church as the household of God. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.15, he tells Timothy, I'm writing to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church. That this is a family. This is, we are brothers and sisters in Christ as we so often use this terminology. And so Paul is saying, let brotherly love, Philadelphia, let it continue. Let it remain. Let it abide. And these commands aren't unique to here in Romans 12.10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10, he talks about how the, the Thessalonian church had been doing well in this regard. And he says, don't stop, but excel still more. 
Keep loving one another well. Keep the focus on other people there. First Peter 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So the gospel does what? And according to Peter, it produces in us a brotherly love. And ladies, if you're hung up on that, you can translate sisterly love. That's fine. The, the point here is that we love each other like family. That we have a, a, a love that's bent on the good of the other people in this room. Brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, we care for each other. And that's what our call is here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let it keep going. But then we ask ourselves, okay, well, what should that look like? What does that look like in action? And that's where he goes in the next four verses, five verses for us. And we have to remember that, that he's writing to a specific group of people at a specific time facing specific circumstances. So he's addressing some, some key areas within this group that he wanted them to pay attention to and to address. However, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we can understand that all of this has something to, to say for how we conduct ourselves as well today, some 2,000 years about later from when this was first written. And so let's pick up in verse 2 as we begin to look at what does it mean? How do I love one another like a, a brother and sister in Christ? How do I let brotherly love continue? He begins in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Stop there for a second. Hospitality. What is hospitality? Hospitality is literally treating a stranger as a friend. That's what it is to be hospitable. The word for brotherly, love, is Philadelphia, right? Phileo, which is love, and Adelphos, which is brother. It's a compound word in the Greek. We've got another one here that plays off that in the Greek, philozenia. It's, again, phileo, love of, and xenos, which is strangers, foreigners. And so it's another compound word. Let brotherly love continue. Well, how do I let brotherly love continue? By showing hospitality to strangers, by loving the, the strangers, Strangers how? Strangers in what sense? Strangers like just the random person on the side of the road? No, strangers as in other believers whom you may not know. During this time, people were traveling all over the place. And for example, the, the inns that were in these towns were not necessarily the most safe places for people to, to stay. And so he's writing to this church saying, hey, be hospitable. Show hospitality to, to strangers, hospitality to strangers, which may mean that you open your house to let a fellow brother or sister in Christ crash on your couch while they're staying in the region rather than putting them in the inn where they don't know anybody and they might get jumped. This is warmly welcoming someone into your home, meeting their needs, providing for their needs, somebody that you don't know as though they were a friend. And we're called to do this church within the household of God, with one another. That's what the context is here. Again, treating a stranger as a friend. Why in the world would I do that? Well, look at verse 2 as he continues on. For thereby, by doing this, by showing hospitality to strangers, he says, some have entertained angels unawares. In other words, he's saying, by treating strangers within the, the household of God with kindness, some of you are doing so with, with angels and storing up reward for yourself. You go, really? That seems a little far-fetched. Okay, Genesis 18 Abraham entertains angels, the angel of the Lord, and two other angels who are sitting under the, the tree, and he prepares a meal for them. And then two of those angels, Genesis 19, go down and stay with Lot for the night and pull him out of Sodom. You remember that story? And they're appearing in the flesh as though they are human beings. And Lot was hospitable to them, and Abraham was hospitable to them. How about Judges 6? The angel of the Lord visits Gideon and calls him for ministry. 
Judges 13, the angel of the Lord appears to Samson's parents to tell them about what type of child Samson needed to be as a Nazarite, right? And so you say, well, are we still doing this today? Is this still really happening today? That seems, is the angel of the Lord going to show up to me? Well, I can't necessarily say that, but I can read to you Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says this in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. And inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so here you have the, the, the judgment where the sheep and the goats are separated. And Jesus tells the sheep, enter in because look at all the good things that you did to me. And the sheep say, when did we do that to you? And notice some of the parallels between that and our passage here, the hospitality elements here. And Jesus says, as you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. You did it to me. Entertaining angels unawares. Proverbs 19, 17 says this, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. If you're generous to those in need, you are lending to the Lord in that. If you're hospitable to somebody in need, you are lending to the Lord. You are putting the Lord in your debt as far as reward is concerned. That's a pretty good, pretty good thing in my books, right? The implication here, though, is more than just the reward in showing hospitality because he continues on there beyond hospitality. Look at verse 3. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated. There's parallels between verses 2 and 3. He says, do not neglect in verse 2. In verse 3, he says, remember. Then he says, show hospitality in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he says, we're to treat them as though we are in prison with them. We're to meet their needs as though we have the same needs. Who are the people in prison? Well, they're not the people who are in prison because they deserve to be there, okay? These are not the murderers and the rapists and the thieves. And the, uh, This is not who he's talking about here. He's talking about those that have been put in prison because of their faith, those that have been put in prison because of persecution. He's saying, remember them and treat them as though you were in prison with them. Think about how you would want to be treated while there and then treat them in the same way. And then he talks about the mistreated, those that have suffered abuse of one kind or another. They've had possessions taken away or they've been physically wounded or hurt like Paul was with the stoning that he suffered as we studied in Acts chapter 14. They've had injuries. They've, they've been abused. They've been mistreated for their faith in Jesus. And he's saying, remember them, take care of them, show compassion towards them. He says in verse 3, since you also are in the body. Now, our temptation might be to, to think that he's talking about the body of Christ there, since you are also in the body of Christ, and when one member suffers, all suffer. And that would be great, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's appealing to the fact that you are still in the flesh. Think about what it would be like for your physical body to be where their physical bodies are. Think about what it would be like for your physical body to suffer the mistreatment that their physical bodies have suffered. Empathize with them. Enter into their pain with them as much as you are able because you also are in the body. Verses 2 and 3 help us to understand a key point regarding what it looks like to love one another with a brotherly affection. It means it's, it's love that goes beyond just words. It's love that is not just loving when it's comfortable. It's a love that's not just loving people that we're familiar with. 
and that it's easy to talk to and easy to hang with. See, when we love the way that the author and the way that God wants us to love in this text, we love believers without concern for who they are or where they are or when they showed up. We love them because they are a brother or a sister in Christ. Point number one, one tonight is this. Practice an indiscriminate love. Practice an indiscriminate love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Y'all, this is not easy, is it? He wouldn't have to write to us to, to let brotherly love continue if this came naturally. It's not easy to love people we don't know. It's not easy to strike up a conversation with a visitor. It feels awkward. It's not easy to love people in difficult situations. It's not easy to love people who have been hurt. These are not things that come naturally to, our, to us, and, and the reality is by ourselves, we can't do this because this is completely antithetical to the human race to love indiscriminately. The human race is about loving as it benefits me, as an extension of self. What do I get out of it? That's not the type of love that we're talking about here. It requires a, a mindset that does not come naturally and definitely does not come from the world. Again, the world's trumpet is self-love. Love yourselves. Take care of yourselves. Set your boundaries. You get to choose who gets your time and your, your precious commodities. That's what the world says. God says, no, you should love indiscriminately. The love in Hebrews 13 doesn't start with self. In fact, it actually demands that we get over ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, familiar passage. You'll spend some time here in small groups, but it says just in verses 1 through 4, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, he says, from what? Selfish ambition or conceit. There goes self-love right out the window. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Y'all, if you are into this whole concept of self-love, I just want you to pay attention to the passages, the scripture, God's word that we're, we're reading tonight. And ask yourself, does it jive? What does it look like then for us to show hospitality here in the bridge? What is this going to be like? Well, how about just basically, number one, this is fundamental, welcoming visitors. That when visitors walk in and you see somebody that you don't recognize, go up and say hello, welcome them, introduce yourself. Hi, my name's such and such. Well, that's hard. What if they don't like me? What if they think I'm weird? Well, maybe you are weird. So take a friend who's a little bit less weird than you are. No, I, think, put yourself in their shoes. Would you want to be welcomed? Or would you want to be ignored? Welcome visitor. Second, invite somebody you don't know to sit with you. Right? I mean, this is a weird place to walk into, especially in the middle of the sermon. <laughs> no, this is, this is a, a, a place to walk into. And there's like 70 of y'all in here. And you guys, a lot of you know each other. And you've got friendships and relationships. Man, walking in here fresh off, off of the street or walking in here and, and not knowing anybody... That's hard. Show some hospitality, Bridge. Invite uh, somebody who's new that you don't recognize to sit with you and your friends. In fact, in invite them to come to your small group afterwards. Hey, do you have a small group to go to? If not, you should come to mine. We'd love to have you be there. Make sure a visitor gets some food. 
Sometimes they're going to walk in and go, do I have to pay for this? What's, how, do, how does this work here? What do I need to be doing here? Ask good questions of people you're trying to get to know. Don't just be like, oh, so you like pizza? Cool, me too. You want to come to my small group? No, get to know them. Ask intentional questions. What do you do? What's your story? What's your backstory? How'd you hear about us? Include a new person in the post-bridge activity. We're going to in and out right? That's something that you guys have done, that you're used to doing, that you know what, that, what the routine is. We'll make sure that somebody who's new knows what the routine is on that. That's how we can show some hospitality in the bridge. One of the greatest barriers to us doing this, though, is the mindset that somebody else is going to do it. We assume, yeah, somebody else will, will reach out to that person. Stop assuming and start doing, right? I'd rather them have to be like, dude, too many people talk to me tonight than to walk out going, nobody talked to me. How do we remember prisoners in the bridge? It's a weird statement. Uh, first, this is, let me back up. This is not sending care packages to away students. That is not what we're talking about here, right? They are not the prisoners in the bridge. No, but it's intentionally thinking of and praying for a friend who's having a tough time. They're not in jail, hopefully, but they're going through it right now. And for you to think about them and pray for them as though you were going through what they're going through. Following up on a prayer request from small group, midweek. Not just saying, okay, well, I'll wait until next Sunday, and then by then you forget about what the prayer request was. But if there's an interview that somebody has on Wednesday, follow up on Wednesday afternoon and say, hey, how'd it go? I was praying for you. It's a way that you can remember them. Being a listening ear for a friend that's hurting. I remember when my parents got divorced, that one of the most impactful things for me was somebody, a youth pastor that I had who was like 26 years old and didn't know what was going on, but he sat there and he listened to me. And he listened to me vent, and then he just let me be upset and let me be hurting in that moment. And it wasn't that I needed him to fix it or to remind me that God is sovereign or anything else. He just was there to listen and to hear and to be a friend. Spending time with needy people. Sometimes your inclination and, and default is to avoid them. But battle against that and spend time with them instead. Spend time with them. The biggest barrier to us doing these is our love of self. Our comfort, our agenda, our schedule, our needs. Those are the things that get in the way of us loving like this. The things that get in the way of us remembering those that are imprisoned and those that are mistreated. We need an others first kind of love if we're going to love like this. We need to practice an indiscriminate love. But he goes on and shifts gears and shifts to a different subject in verse 4. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. What in the world does this have to do with? Brotherly love. Well, we'll get there, but let me just tell you it does. Okay? I'll tell you up front it does. Just come with me on this path. Again, an imperative. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Honor is actually the same word that shows up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious, there's the word, 
Same word for honor in our passage. Same Greek word there. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the author is taking a word that Peter uses to describe the blood of Christ and saying that's how we should hold marriage. We should honor marriage. And then he says, and, and the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed is a euphemism for sex. And so he's saying here that the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife should be undefiled. And some of y'all are in the room going, well, I'm not married. But y'all, that starts now. In fact, not just now, it's been going. What does that mean? What does it look like for us to keep the marriage bed undefiled? Just in general, no adulterous relationships. You go, okay, well, I'm not, I haven't, I, I'm not, I'm not sleeping with any married people, so check. Okay, well, how about this one? No pornography. No masturbation. Nothing sexual that should be between a husband and a wife. This is what it looks like to keep the marriage bed undefiled. This is what it looks like, part of it, to honor marriage. And here's the deal, y'all. These are the sins, at least the, the bottom three maybe, that we think, well, you know what? It's, it's really not hurting anybody because no one knows about this. If no one knows about it, then why does it matter? Well, let's rethink that no one knows. How about 2 Chronicles 16, 9? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, giving strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. That the Lord is looking, roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth. And that doesn't mean that sometimes his eyes are not on you, okay? This is just a metaphor. It's not like God turns his back on you at some point and you can get away with something. Proverbs 5.21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. You live your life in the, before the face of God and the eyes of the Lord. Psalm 139, I mean, just the, the, the time and time and time again, David says, where can I go from your spirit? Verse 7, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So for us to say, well, no one knows it's not going to hurt anybody doesn't fly. In fact, Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 through 28 says this. It says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Y'all, I, I, I get that you might be feeling some weight and some guilt here. And I'm not sorry for that. That's a good thing. It's part of the job of the church. That's part of the job of the word of God is to press in on sin. Y'all, when we think about brotherly love for one another, it involves a commitment to purity for ourselves and for every other person in this room. It's not loving to engage in sexual immorality and adulterous behavior. 
It's not loving to entertain immoral thoughts about your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. And it's not going to go unnoticed by your Father in heaven. Point number two tonight is this. Respect God's boundaries for marriage. Respect God's boundaries for marriage. The law of the the nation, right, says that you are not allowed to take the keys and get behind the wheel of a car by yourself until you are 16 and have a driver's license. My guess is most of you in this room abided by those restrictions. No one thought, oh, but you know what? I love my car so much. I know I'm not 16 and I know I don't have a license, but if I don't take it out for a spin, my car's gonna think I don't love it anymore. Some of you guys see where I'm going with this. Or, well, I, I, I'm going to turn 16. I know it's a sure thing. I, we're, I'm, I'm going to turn 16. It's on the calendar. The date's there. I'm going to turn 16. It's already, so why can't I just live like I'm 16 now? And let me just grab the keys and go ahead and, and test it out. You may look at that and go, yeah, no, I didn't do that. I'd be breaking the law, and if I got pulled over by a cop, I, I'd be toast. You're right, you would be. And yet some of you in the room tonight have done that when it comes to God and his rules and restrictions for marriage. And you sit here tonight like it's okay. Y'all, I'm just telling you, it's not okay. It's not okay. Look back in our passage. What does it say? It says, for what? For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Did you catch that? Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge. God will judge. God will judge. The sexually immoral and the adulterous. Well, so Pastor PJ, are you telling me that the sexual immorality is the unpardonable sin? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you that. Not at all. But let me remind y'all of Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. Maybe you forgot that, that text, but it says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, okay, if we continue in unrepentant patterns of sexual sin and sinful behavior after receiving a knowledge of the truth, if we persist in these things and don't leave them off, the author says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. No, it's not the unpardonable sin, but Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what should we say? Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, grace is good news for me if I just want to keep sinning. Because you said before, Pastor PJ, you can never out-sin the blood of Christ. And that's true. You can't. There's no limit to the number of sins if you are in Christ. And Paul says one of the signifying elements of that in Romans chapter 6 is that we understand that, that we have died to sin. He says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it, still remain in it, still stay in it? And so I'm, I'm here to tell y'all, if you guys are engaging in persistent, ongoing sexual immorality, and there is no battle, there is no fight, and there is no repentance, that I just want you to, to understand and hear what the writer says there when he says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In fact, if you look at scripture so many times, the judgment of God, the, one of the, the key objects of his wrath is sexual immorality. 
So what does that look like for us? How can we honor marriage here in the bridge? Let's start with honoring it, and then we'll talk about the marriage bed being undefiled. The first thing to do is respect it as a God-ordained institution. Marriage is not defined by man. Never has been. It's always been, from the outset, defined by God, and we need to understand that, and we need to respect it as a God-ordained institution. The laws of the land don't get to tell us who can and can't be married. God does. His unchanging eternal word has set it in place. Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 23 there. That's the, the first marriage where God takes Eve and presents her to Adam. And God says, for this reason, a man shall leave his, his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then you get to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, and he repeats this again. Marriage is defined by God. Marriage is, period, end of story, a union between a man and a wife. A, a biological male and a biological female, they get married, and no one else has a legitimate, valid marriage in the eyes of God. It's what the Bible says and what we believe. And we are to respect it as a God-ordained institution. How else can we honor marriage? Don't celebrate or give approval to attacks on God's design. Don't give ground to it. What does that look like? Well, let's list off some of the direct attacks to it in our, our culture today. How about homosexuality, polyamory, polygamy, pedophilia? You guys understand, those of you out there that, that have a soft spot for homosexuals in your heart, that the, the pedophile community are taking the same arguments and employing those now, and before too long, pedophilia is going to be normalized in our nation. Are you going to draw the line then, or are you going to be okay with it then? Because we got to let people love who they want to love. These are all attacks on God's design for marriage. And listen, y'all, we need to be careful about giving approval to these attacks on his design for marriage. And you say, well, how does that look? What does that look like to give approval for it? If I believe, like you're preaching, Pastor PJ, that marriage is between a husband and wife, is that good enough? Well, let me ask you, how about your social media accounts? Are you following accounts that promote homosexuality, that promote these attacks on God's design for marriage? Are you supporting them? Are you liking them? Are you giving your ear to them? And you're thinking that, that that's okay? Because maybe you think to yourself, well, I'm against kicking puppies. And so is this person. This person's also against kicking puppies. So I'm for them. I follow them on Instagram. Whereas besides being for kicking puppies or against kicking puppies, they also are for every one of these attacks on God's design for marriage. And you think it's okay because, you know, after all, shouldn't we support people who are against kicking puppies? It's a ridiculous illustration, but you get my point, I hope. Some of y'all, as application to the sermon, would do well to go through your social media follows tonight and begin unfollowing. Because we do not want to give the impression that we are supporting or we are for attacks on God's design and definition of marriage. Check your watch history, YouTube, Netflix, whatever it may be. Are you watching things? Are you engaging with things that are celebrating homosexuality? Are you celebrating? Are you watching? Are you being entertained by things that celebrate a direct attack on God's design for marriage? And you're thinking to yourself, man, Pastor PJ, that's going to mean that I'm not watching much. You're right. Y'all, this is a, a battlefield that the church needs to begin to draw hard lines on. And my wife and I have begun to experience this more and more when we realize more and more that everything that comes out 
we just, we don't watch it anymore. During the, the COVID shutdown, we binge watched Survivor, right? Because why not? But we don't watch it anymore because all it is is a flamboyant celebration of homosexuality. So you're going to have to make some tough choices. And really, guys, honestly, turning off a show and not watching it anymore, in the grand scheme of things, on, on suffering for Jesus, that's, that's like elementary level. That's preschool level. But let's do that. Social media, entertainment, friends. Y'all, if your closest friends practice these lifestyles, or I would even say if your closest friends support these lifestyles, that's a problem. Am I saying you can't be friends with somebody who's a homosexual? No, I'm not saying that. But can I remind you of 2 Corinthians 6.14 really quick? Which says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And yes, that does apply to your dating relationships, but it also applies to your friendships. That your closest relationships should not be with unbelievers. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Some of your friends, those friendships may need to change. Business. Who you employ, who you partner with in business. If they are pro-LGBTQ and openly, and that's, that's a key part of who they are and part of their identity, is you should not be supporting them. And you can call me a legalist, that's fine. I just want you to know that you're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ at some, someday and answer for everything that, that you've done. I'm not saying don't go to Target because Target may employ somebody who's homosexual. I'm not taking it to that level. But I'm saying if this is a key part of who they are as an identity, that this is a key part of their promotion, a key part of, of what they support, you don't need to be engaging with them. Why? Because do not be unequally yoked. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What testimony are you giving by, by engaging with these things, by partnering with these things, by supporting these things? It's not a good testimony. So that's how we can honor marriage. How about keeping the marriage bed pure? Fight for your own sexual purity to start. Fight for it been around long enough, you heard me say, I don't want you to struggle with sin. I want you to fight sin. Whatever that looks like, employing accountability software, employing accountability partners. But here's the deal, y'all. That's only as good as you're willing to, to be honest with somebody. You can lie your way through accountability all day long, and it's not going to do you any good at all. But fight for your own sexual purity. Realize that what takes place in your mind also is sinful. Entertaining these thoughts about other people, sin. Matthew 5, everyone who has had a lustful thought about a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. Watch out for the sexual purity of your peers. 
Y'all, if you are in a dating relationship in this room, do not put yourselves in compromising situations. Keep yourself far from it. Paul told, Paul told Timothy, flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Think of your peers as someone else's future husband and wife, even if you are dating them. It's a good rule of thumb until you've got a ring on the finger. And even then, to go back to my illustration, you're not 16 yet. But think of the fact that you might be dating somebody else's future husband and future wife. And think about the fact that your future husband and future wife might be dating somebody else in this room or somebody else out there. And ask yourself, well, how would I want them being treated right now in the area of sexual purity? And ask yourself, how am I treating the person that I'm dating with? Because there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. Think about what you might have to confess to your future husband or wife. I see it happen in premarital counseling all the time. People come in, and part of the, the process, it comes out that one of the, the people engaged was in a sexual relationship in the past. And either we talk about how hard it was for them to tell the other person about that, or we walk through that live in my office. It's not something that you want to experience. Humbly acknowledge that you're not the exception to the rule. You're not the exception to the rule. And this speaks to the mindset of, well, you know what? We're going to get married. We're, we're going to get married. It's, it's a sure thing, so why not? Why not go ahead? Because you're not married. You're not married. And there's something solemn that happens between a husband and a wife as God ordains and brings them together in that union. That's why it's not a courthouse that makes a, a man and woman husband and wife. It is a, a ceremony that takes place within the confines of not necessarily the, the walls of the church, but the church as the body of Christ with a pastor that oversees that ceremony and solemnizes it in the eyes of God and the congregation that's gathered there. There's something about that moment that then the two are one flesh, and that's manifested in the sexual relationship. Not before that. You're not the exception to the rule. Respect God's boundaries for marriage. First Thessalonians 4, 6-8 says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, speaking of sexual purity. No one should transgress and wrong, sin against his brother or sister in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul's saying bluntly, boldly, don't sin against each other when it comes to sexual purity because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. Because he hasn't called you for impurity, but, but for purity. And Paul says, you don't like my message, you want to ignore it? Just understand, if you ignore it, you're not under ignoring a man. You're not ignoring me, you're ignoring God. 
the biggest barrier to us living this way, this kind of love, is again our flesh. Because we are selfish creatures by default who want selfish things. And when we give in to sexual temptation, it is the ultimate act of self-worship. In fact, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. When he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Y'all, your sexuality is an object of worship to God. That you should engage in sexual activity as an expression of worship to God within the confines of a God-ordained, God-designed marriage. Anything outside of that, you have perverted his design for sex. Sex he gave us as an, as an instrument of worship. Not for the creature, but for the creator. So think about that. That sex was given to you to be used to worship the Lord in the confines of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And nowhere else. And anything outside of that is the worship of the creature over the creator. Okay, fourth. Now you're finally going to be relieved that I'm moving off this subject. Verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Again, we get another phileo compound. This time it's aphiloguros. It's ah, the negative prefix, phileo, and then guros. Phileo, love, and guros is, is money. Ah is the negation. Do not love money is what he's saying here. Keep your life free from a love of money. And that word is in the place of emphasis in this text. As you want to let brotherly love continue, what does it look like? It means like not it, it looks like not hoarding things for yourself, not storing up treasures for yourself. First, first Timothy 3.3, 3, it's a qualification for an elder, for a pastor, that he not be a lover of money, that that can't be something that, that characterizes him. But again, how does this relate to brotherly love in view in this passage, loving one another? Well, remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34? Probably not. Let me read it for you. It says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, they were suffering financial loss for following Jesus. And the temptation could have arisen to have that survival instinct that kicks in, that, that wants them to hold on a little bit more tightly to their money and their possessions. To go, well, I, I don't want to, I, I can't give, I, I can't help someone, because what happens if all my stuff gets taken away? The author here in Hebrews is saying, no, you need to be ready to love other people. And to be ready to love other people, you need to be ready to give to love other people. Which means that you can't be a lover of money. And then he goes on, he, he expounds further. He says, instead, what do we need to do? We need to be content. Be content with what we do have. To be content is to be satisfied and to consider it enough. Here he may have been addressing those that had already suffered loss. Those that had had their homes taken from them, their possessions plundered. And he's, he's preaching to them now going, hey, you know what? Rather than being covetous, rather than being greedy for gain, rather than being jealous of your brothers and sisters in Christ who may have more than you do right now, hey, love them by being content with what God has given you. Even if that means that God has taken from you. Be content. Guard against that envy and that jealousy. Why? Verse 5, he continues on. He says, for he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
That's, that's a pretty amazing promise. Sounds like that's, that's enough for us, right? Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what can man do to me. Even if you lose your possessions, even if you lose your money, even if you lose your home, even if you lose your freedom, even if you lose your life, you have this promise from the Lord where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I promise you can take to the bank, pun intended. 31.6, Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 55.22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. It's a little bit of a spin on what we're talking about here, but he's not going to per- permit something to happen to you. He's got you. Well, what about Job? He still had Job. Philippians 4, 11, Paul says this. I'm not speaking of being in need. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Why did Paul have that mindset? Because he knew what mattered, and he knew that God had him, and he knew that God was never going to leave him or forsake him. He knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Paul said, I'm, not, I'm, I'm content. Paul, you're content when you're getting stoned and left for dead? Yes. Why? Because I'm serving the Lord. And he's never going to leave me or forsake me. Even if I die, he's not going to leave me or forsake me. He's got me. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 56.4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 56.11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me, Psalm, or Romans rather, 8.31, New Testament, Paul says, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This promise from the Lord gives us the freedom to be generous with other people, to be hospitable with others, to not be lovers of money, to be content with what we have. Because we have a God that has said and promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Greatest hindrance in all the other commands we found, including this one itself, is, is, is the self. We are lovers of self, and we will not be generous people. We will be tight-fisted lovers of money if we don't overcome the self. We will always want more, never being satisfied with what we have. A key way to spin that is to understand that what you have isn't really yours to begin with. It's not. Nothing that you have is. You may have bought it exchange the money that procured the item for you. But where'd that money come from? My boss. Okay, come on, guys. Let's zoom out a little bit. Where'd your job come from? It wasn't you who got it. You might be the most charismatic, dynamic personality in the room in a room full of people being interviewed. 
But y'all, it was the Lord that gave you that job. Every good gift comes from the Lord. You see, everything that we have is not ours, it's God's. And if we want to love one another well, a good way for us to love one another well is point number three tonight. It's this, treat your stuff as God's stuff. Treat your stuff as God's stuff because it is God's stuff. And if we have that mindset, we're going to be willing to use it the way that God wants us to use it. Imagine for a moment if your car broke down and Pastor Mike said, hey, you can have my car. And he told you, you know what, use it, drive it wherever you need to drive it. No mileage limitations on it or anything else like that. Uh, you know, I may need a ride occasionally, but you know, not only do I want you to use my car, use my car and I'm going to pay for all your gas while you're at it too. So use my car. I've got your gas. Do whatever you need for it. But hey, I just want you to know occasionally I may need you to do something for me. I may need a ride to the church to preach. I, I do that occasionally on the weekends. And then I may need, you know, my wife and I have date night on Wednesday nights. Or a, a friend of mine ha- may have a need that I might need you to, t- to take my car that's, that's mine, remember, that, that I'm giving you to use however you want it and, and go and help that person that has a need and give them a ride somewhere. You're like, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. Give me the car so I can have it. And you, you get the car and you drive the car away. And then a week later, Pastor Mike texts you and, and calls you and says, he texts you because he doesn't often call you. You know you're in trouble if Pastor Mike calls you. Um, no, not really. But he texts you and he says, hey, I need a ride to, to the church to preach. It's, it's Saturday afternoon and, and I need to be there. And you sit there and you go, oh, really? I don't, I, it's so far to, to get out of my house and get in the car. And it's, do you know how much gas money it's going to cost for me to get to your house, Pastor Mike, and pick you up and take you over to the church? And it's also going to put some wear and tear on the tires to, to get there. And I don't, I don't know. I just replaced the brakes. This is going to wear down my brakes. I'm going to have to stop at stoplights for you. All just to get you to the church. I mean, is there, isn't, isn't there anybody else that can do that? All the while, it's his car. He's paying for everything for it. He's lent it to you to use, but he's told you, hey, I may need you to use it for me from time to time. Okay. Hopefully, you've drawn the the correlation. Y'all, there's nothing that God has not given you and said, I'm providing this for you, but I want you to use it for me. I want you to use it for me. Everything that we have is a gift that God has entrusted to us. All of it is his. Everything that you have is his. And if we're not using it for him, then we're misusing it. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 23, you've got the parable of the talents. And, and Jesus tells this parable, and he entrusts the, the master, entrusts the talents to the servants, and then goes away on a journey. And he comes back, and what does he, what does he expect the servants to have done? To use the things that he entrusted to them to turn a profit for him for his good. And they are the servants that are commended. Whereas the the servant that doesn't use it for the good of the master, he is condemned. Y'all, how are you using what the Lord has given you for his profit, for his good? What are some ways that we can do that? How can we not be a lover of money here in the bridge? First, let me challenge you to be giving regularly to the church. And no, I'm not going to apologize for that. I can't believe a pastor would say that we should give to the church. Hey, guess what, y'all? So should pastors, and we do here on this staff. I just want to let you know that. We're not in some exempt class where we don't have the obligation to give back to the Lord. So I'm preaching to myself in this too. We all need to be giving to the church. If you're not giving to the church and you're a believer, you're, you're not obeying the Lord in this. And if you're cash-strapped and all you have to give is a dollar a month to the church, give a dollar a month to the church. But give back to the Lord what he's already given to you. Second, be generous when you've got the ability. 
be generous with what the Lord has entrusted to you. Whether that's your possessions, your car, your, your, your money, your bank account, whatever, be generous when you've got the ability. And by the way, when I say generosity, I don't mean extravagance. Being generous can be buying somebody a milkshake tonight at In-N-Out because you recognize that they're sitting by themselves and they didn't go up to order one and maybe it's because they don't have the cash right now to be able to do that. You guys are all going to be sitting at the tables looking for Lauren tonight going, who's going to buy me a milkshake and application Pastor PJ Sermon? Be generous even when you feel like you can't. When there's a need and you feel the Lord impressing upon you, hey, go meet that need and you're going, yeah, but God, I don't know if I can meet that need. Step out in faith and meet the need. I'm not here to be prosperity gospel theologian with you and say that you're sowing a seed that you're going to receive. Ten, I don't know. Maybe you're going to bounce a check next week. But I know that God wants us to be generous with the, the, the funds that he's entrusted to us. You guys aren't going to bounce a check. Nobody uses a check. <laughs> you're going to overdraft is what you're going to do or you're going to pull out the credit card. Don't be generous with the credit card either. That's not the application of this sermon. Yeah, I got you. My limit just got raised. No, but be generous even when you feel like you can't. When you're sitting there going, man, I was going to use this money that I had saved up to buy a new whatever. But they were just telling me that their car broke down and they're going to need a repair. And if I give this money, I'm not going to be able to get what I wanted. Okay, I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to love my brother or sister in Christ by giving this money. That's what I'm talking about. Differentiate y'all when you think about your own lives between a, a need and a want. Hopefully you had mom and dad in your ear growing up going, do you want that or do you need that? You're like, mom, I need the PS5. I need it. She's like, I don't think you do. You don't understand. No, but this is part of growing up, y'all. Because you're not going to have mom asking you if it's a want or a need. Some of you already don't have mom asking if you if it's a want or a need. So ask yourself that question. That doesn't mean you can never get something that's just a want. But if you're going to be able to be more generous towards other people by sacrificing some of those wants, do it. And then practice daily gratitude for what you have. Practice daily gratitude for what you have. You know, the biggest barrier to us not being lovers of money is our culture that we live in. Because we live in a materialistic culture. We live in a culture that we are inundated with ads and in sales and offers and influence, influencers telling us about the latest must-haves. Like, I think the pinnacle of this is the apple polishing cloth that is 20 bucks for something that costs four bucks on Amazon. But it's got the Apple logo on it, and it's sold by Apple, and it smells like Apple when you get it. I don't know, because I don't have one, but I bet you it smells like Apple. Some of y'all who are new are like, what in the world is he talking about? I like the smell of Apple. Um, not the fruit, the computer. But yeah, it's our culture. It's, it's this culture of must-haves, right? A another barrier to this, y'all, is the uncertainty of the times that we live in right now. But y'all, here's the deal. God is the same today as, as he was yesterday. And God has outlived tumultuous times and will outlive tumultuous, tumultuous times in the future. And he is able to provide. And listen, he wants us to be people that do not love money. And so be generous, people. Meet the needs when you have the ability to meet the needs. Well, verse 1 begins our author's parting words. Let brotherly love continue. And he starts his conclusion by calling on his readers to live for the good of the body rather than the good of the individual. 
The next five verses unpacked what that looked like. And each of these verses is a call not to self-love, but to love others over self. Let's pray. Father, that's hard to do, to love someone else more than I love myself. Because in my flesh, I'm inclined to love me more than anyone else, to look out for me more than looking out for anyone else, to, to care about my needs over the needs of others. And it's easy even to look around the world and say, well, everyone else is just caring about themselves, so why shouldn't I care about myself too? But Lord, the beauty of your call on us to let brotherly love continue is that if we put this into practice as we are loving others, others will love us as well. And so there will be a symbiotic relationship amongst us and where all of our needs are ultimately met by one another as we work together as the body of Christ, as we, as Paul said, complete his joy by having the same mind, the same love, by looking out not only for our own interests, but also to the interests of others, by considering others even more important, more significant than ourselves, Lord. Give us the grace to have that level of love for one another, the humility to have that level of love for one another. Rot that in us, create that in us here in this group. Lord, if there's things that we need to repent of tonight, I pray that we would repent of those things tonight, that we would leave them off, whether that be attitudes or actions or just outright physical sexual sin that we need to say, we're, we're done with this. God, I pray that tonight we would drive the stake in the ground and repent from it. God, I pray that we would be mindful of the fact that we exist not for ourselves, but for another, and that other is ultimately Jesus Christ. And he set the example for us when he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And he called us to take up our cross and to deny ourselves daily. He called us to love others as we have been loved. He even said that that will be the hallmark of our identity as Christians, that the world will know that we are his because we love as he has loved us. And so God, help us to do that because, again, we need you to help us to do that because it does not come naturally. It comes as a product of the Spirit working that within our lives, in our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's respond to what we just heard. The high calling that Christians are called to live, but it's because our God is distinct from all of creation. He's a holy God and worthy to be praised.